Welcome back to the Paranorm Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. I have been so excited for today's episode. Today, we are going to be exploring different shapes of craft that have been reported since the beginning. Interestingly, while it is far more than just your stereotypical flying saucer, it really is only a handful of shapes that folks have repeatedly reported throughout our history. The second part of today's episode, we will be exploring numerous alien species that have been reported during abduction cases and can be seen across ET literature. A very traditional way of looking at this phenomenon has always been that unidentified flying objects are being controlled by aliens, ships and ETs, two very fundamental elements to this conversation uh, that, that seem to go hand in hand. But I have been having some issue fitting these pieces together for myself, so I am very much looking forward to this closer look. I'm curious if there are any patterns that can be seen when we look at the basic aspects of this phenomenon like we will do today. And I'm also curious if any new connections might possibly be made when we look at these two elements. Um, is there something being indicated based on what people are reporting that maybe just hasn't been noticed yet? Much like uh, something very interesting that Lou Elizondo spoke to a couple of years ago during an interview uh, about uh, the object shapes and their function. And, and we will look at what he had to say about that a little later in the episode. Before we start, uh, something that has been on my mind, some curious info that I stumbled across in an article published in Towards Data Science, written by Travis Green. The title of this article is Data Analysis, Everything You've Ever Wanted to Know About UFO Sightings. And it's a complete breakdown and analysis he did of over 80,000 UFO sightings reported to the National UFO Reporting Center. This article was published in 2018. So, of course, we know that there's going to be much more than that at this point. But a pool of 80,000 plus is still a pretty good data set to begin with. Um, I suspect if we were to pull the info today, pull the numbers today, we would get much of the same resulting information. According to Green's analysis, you are more likely to spot UFOs between June and July. If you want to get more specific than that, you are more likely to spot one on a Saturday over any other day of the week. And if you, for real, real, want to see something, try looking to the skies anytime between 8 and 11 p.m. So, for all of my curious sky gazers, this may be your ticket. However, if you didn't already catch it, these may only be the magical time frames due to people actually having the time and ability to look towards the skies. Uh, we see the spike taking place in the summer. So summer break, maybe your, your family's on vacation, maybe y'all are road tripping. We see the spike on Saturdays. A lot more people are going to traditionally have that day off from work um, as the runner-up day for sightings on Saturdays is Sunday. And of course, a lot of people are going to be off work in the evenings if they are working the traditional workday and have the freedom and ability to be looking towards the night sky come 8 p.m. I will also note something that Green pointed out that the two biggest spikes that we see all year long take place on the 4th of July and New Year's Eve. So Obviously, there is a portion of the public that is mistaking fireworks for UFOs, um, though that should not discount this phenomenon as it doesn't affect or speak to the thousands of remaining reports taking place throughout the rest of the year. But just thought that was interesting information. I, uh, I love a good pattern when it comes to anything high strangeness. Uh, so just wanted to share that. Uh, we're going to do a quick word from our sponsors, and then we are getting into it. Our friends at Manscaped are now selling beard products just in time for Valentine's Day. Like, just in time. Happy Valentine's Day, guys. 
The leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming are once again revolutionizing the men's hygiene game with the new Beard Hedger Pro Kit. No one likes a weird beard, so say goodbye to all your stubble trouble and tame his mane this Valentine's. Save 20% off and free shipping by going to manscaped.com and using code PNG. I have a correction to make. I'm not perfect. I know. I know. <laughs> I, like I said, this kit has introduced an entire new world to me. Uh, I, I, I mixed up some steps, and uh, Lee pointed it out to me <laughs> after he listened to last week's episode. So let me correct that, and then I have some real feedback for you. So let's start. Uh, you're going to cleanse and soften with the shampoo and conditioner, beard shampoo and conditioner. Then you can use the comb to detangle, which is an important step if you want a more even cut when it comes time to start trimming. Start trimming! Again, the Beard Hedger trimmer has 20 levels to it, 20 different lengths, and it's waterproof. It's pretty badass. Then you're going to snip any strays with the scissors. Then you are going to brush out the burl with the handheld brush. And then you're going to moisturize and perfect your style with the beard oil and beard balm. So cool. All right. Beard hygiene. A man's facial hair is different. Did you know? It's uh, coarse and easier to damage than the hair on your head. So that's why the shampoo and conditioner that can be found in the Beard Hedger Pro Kit are so important to add to your regular regimen. These are dermatologically tested formulations specifically designed to moisturize, reduce ingrown hairs, which I know a lot of people have major issues with, replaces natural oils, and promotes beard health. I'm a major fan of these two items. Um, as someone who touches my boy's face frequently, when I compare his current growth to times that he has tried it in the past, it is quite a bit softer. Like, it, it felt more stubbly and rough before. It's not this time around. Uh, it's soft and smooth to the touch, so I can distinctly see and feel that it is more moisturized. And Lee reports that he has not had any issues whatsoever with ingrown hairs, which is fantastic. I know that they can hurt. I know that they can be unsightly. So the beard shampoo and conditioner gets both Lee's and my two thumbs up, dudes. If you would like to try it for yourself, I do recommend check out the Beard Hedger Pro Kit. There's a bunch of rad stuff in there. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PNG at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code PNG. Manscaped Beard Hedger, one stroke, one guard, 20 lengths. So let's begin today with some shapes and types of craft that people have reported seeing. I think it is so interesting to keep in mind that people's descriptions uh, throughout time, while they may differ in their labels, the words that they used, they're still describing the same things that we're seeing today. Um, if not exactly the same, incredibly similar. And not just shapes, but behaviors as well. Uh, let's look at the Nuremberg event in the 1500s. If you are watching the video, I will flash that broadsheet up on the screen to remind you. And if you are listening, I will link to it. Uh, it'll be the first link in the show notes under the sources and references section. So this event included a, a number of craft uh, with distinct shapes and sizes, specific enough that a town full of people described this aerial battle taking place in their sky, and specific enough to detail it out in a piece of published artwork intended for the public record, Sundog My Ass. This is a great one to start with because they literally have three different shapes that folks have reported for hundreds of years. And in addition, one very unique shape that I haven't found anywhere else. What do we got? We got different color spheres. We've got cylinders. And what is this? Looks like the tip of a spear. Looks rather triangular-ish, angular-ish, very black, like explicitly black in this daytime scene that it's being portrayed. 
The shape, I thought, was rather unique, and I haven't seen anywhere else, is the cross shape. It's hard to assign it as anything in particular because I don't have any other accounts to look to, but I see plenty of them up there, a part of the chaos. I see spheres actually attached to the ends of the cross arms, also some crosses without any spheres, which is odd. And these aren't like Christian crosses with one arm longer than the one it crosses, but they rather look axial, like a tire iron. I also see spheres coming out of some of the cylinders, also odd, and I see spheres on the ground with plumes of smoke rising, so they've obviously crashed to the earth or were forced down. Uh, a couple of these cylinders are busted open and flying around in the air. I mean, it's a mess, but a really good portrayal of some of the shapes that we are about to talk about. So let's talk about the orbish globes oft reported in sightings. It's been a couple of weeks straight of these clips captured by the public uh, on TikTok of these really strange-looking metallic balls just flying through the sky. Right away, I would not feel comfortable saying these. some of these are definitely anything but CGI, but quite a few examples that I have seen uh, are really intriguing, you guys. Uh, a, a couple, uh, you can see them just hovering in one spot, just, just chilling up there. Um, a couple, you see them flying at very quick speeds, very high up. I saw a really interesting clip captured on a cell phone about a decade ago from a commercial pilot. Um, he captured it while he was flying 30,000 feet in the air, and it flew toward him and then they passed each other like like two ships in the night or like in the daylight because it, it happened in broad daylight. And there's a, a bothersome response to this ball in the sky thing going on. Not bothersome because I think they might be right and I'm so mad about it. No, 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 no. Quite, quite the contrary. I want reasonable, valid explanations of what these are so that the fake ones can be weeded out more easily. The bothersome part is just a lack of imagination, <laughs> but more so the disdain that it's being said with. Uh, so the skeptical argument is that these are round drones. The tone it's being said with is something along the lines of, oh my God, you guys, these are just round metal drones. I mean, duh, what are you, stupid or something? I might be exaggerating <laughs> the tone a little bit. Um, here's the thing. Aside from those little handheld like mesh toys, you know, that you can buy for your kids and they light up and they, they fly around and they come back, you know, whatever. Were you aware that there were spherical, uh, totally encased by metal drones with, with no visible means of propulsion available for consumers to purchase? That appeared to be two feet in diameter? I mean, they're quite big. And I have to assume that they're for consumers to purchase uh, because they're seen like um, everywhere. They're being seen everywhere. They're, they're being captured on film everywhere around the world. I, this is what Russia described shooting down. And I tried to search online for these vastly popular, widely available, perfectly round metal encapsulated drones. Found one example that looks kind of like what I'm seeing in these clips. Um, it's still in its design phase. Definitely not available for consumer purchase. Um, and, and, and you can still see the openings on the bottom. Because correct me if I'm wrong, we still have not figured out anti-gravity lift field hovering capabilities, right? Am, am I crazy? Did I jump timelines? The drones we build are still going to have visible means of propulsion, aka those little propellers. Um, also, I'm just curious how that skeptical argument speaks to uh, a video like the one captured 10 years ago by the commercial pilot, you know, 30,000 feet up. Um, are, are drones, were drones allowed that high? Are they today? Do Can they function that high? 
I, I don't know. Anybody out there know? Now, these flying globes people have seen for hundreds of years aren't always visibly metallic. They have appeared as red, black, and white. They have appeared in various states of colorful shine and illumination, having been mistaken as stars before they inconveniently, you know, began to move around. <laughs> uh, some have been seen at a standstill, just suspended in air. Some are seen moving at crazy fast speeds. This shape is also one of the shapes often reported by military pilots during World War II and referred to as Foo Fighters. This uh, was also the shape that my friend Charles Cha spoke about during our recent conversation together. If you have not seen that episode, check it out. It was a fascinating story. Um, two thoughts before we move on to our next shape. I wondered if this might be something similar to what the Bits family had in their possession back in the 70s. You know, maybe they had like a like a defunct, broken version of one. I, I remember, as I recall, it could like move around. Um, it could just like roll around on the ground. So I don't know. Uh, second thought, are these scouts? You know, maybe, maybe they are drones. They're, they're just not ours. Um, all right. Cylindrical was a really commonly seen shape um, in the older history of this phenomenon. I, I couldn't seem to recall having read any accounts of the cylinder shape, though, in more recent history. However, upon popping that shape into Google, it brings up a very recent account of a sighting of just this shape. So this took place on February 21st, 2021, on a flight headed from Cincinnati to, uh, oddly enough, Phoenix. Over New Mexico, the commercial pilot called Tower to ask if they had any targets up there, continuing on to say that they had just had something go right over the top of them that looked like a long cylindrical object resembling a cruise missile and moving pretty dang fast. I mean, maybe it was a cruise missile, uh, but can those be launched in some kind of stealth mode over the U.S.? Because the FAA did confirm that air traffic controllers did not see any object in the area on their radar scopes. Uh, another oft-reported shape of old and described in those times past is the cigar shape. Uh, I'm keeping these separated from cylindrical because I think the descriptions are just different enough. It seems in the descriptions that I have read, cigar shape is less elongated with tapering on both ends. It has been described in many different lengths, but also has been described in some stories as quite small, spanning just a couple of feet across in some of the reports from the 50s, and a bit rounder than a cylindrical object. Also, I think what people used to describe as the cigar shape has had an evolution in name only. I suspect what they were seeing is similar to what the Nimitz pilots saw. You know, just a, a, a propane tank looking thing flying around. All right. Uh, I wanted to speak to the object spotted by the crew over on the USS Roosevelt. I really don't know what to think about this thing. It is so weird. So they describe what they saw as a cube encased in a translucent sphere with all of its corners touching the inside surface of the sphere, like it was inside of a perfectly sized bubble. Very cool, very uh, different. I haven't read or heard any other accounts quite like this one. Uh, it, it intrigues me. And the pilot who tells the story, I, I believe he saw this thing. I, I believe he doesn't know what it is. End of story. And of course, ah, the triangular shape has been reported often and was spotted in possibly the two biggest, most widely viewed occurrences to have ever taken place, the Phoenix Lights and Belgium Wave. All right, saving saucers for last, and then we are getting weird, folks. The saucer is the quintessential UFO shape. 
This shape has been captured in numerous candid photos like the McMinnville photos, the Zanesville photos, plays a part in well-known cases of abduction throughout history. It's been portrayed numerous times across ET-related cinema, and it's what immediately comes to mind when you say the word UFO. And it's no surprise, as it's the most commonly reported shape of all the shapes. Flying saucers can come in numerous variations and varieties and sizes. They can be adorned with different colored lights, have portholes, domed tops, flat tops, holes near the middle. They can be flatter, straight across like a coin. Oh, there's variations. Uh, I, I found this really great collection and summation put together of all of the common shapes, uh, but specifically the disc shape. Uh, it's a document entitled The UFO Evidence, published by NICAP in 1964 and submitted to the CIA. And it's still up there on CIA.gov for anyone who wants to take a look. Near the end, they include a sheet of drawings that like boiled down all of the UFO sightings, you know, that had been spotted up to that point into just basic shapes, which I think is so cool. So they went with the cylindrical, triangular, elliptical, spherical, and flattened sphere, all with various attributes distinguishing them from one another. But there have been so many varieties of flying saucer um, that they created four subcategories for them. They are the flat disc, like a coin, the domed disc, like the Jetsons, the Saturn disc, like two saucers clamped together, and the hemispherical disc. Take a ball, cut it in half, flat side on the bottom, hemispherical disc. Uh, I recommend this page of drawings, but hey, I highly recommend just download a copy of the entire document. It, it's good. It's long, but totally worth the read. All right. I uh, mentioned that I wanted to just talk a little bit about what Lou Elizondo said in that interview a couple of years ago. So this took place during an interview between George Knapp, Jan Harzen, and Lou. George asks... Jan, I'm wondering if since the Tic Tac video came forward, whether MUFON has gone through its files to look for similar type craft. Have they popped up before? You've heard the argument that UFOs seem to evolve over time, and they're always just one or two steps ahead of what our aviation or aerospace capabilities are. Is there any evidence that something like Tic Tac has been around a long time? And Jan responded with something that the article didn't quote. But then Lou chimes in and says, I will say, George, there are some, there was some speculation and some theories within the department on the shapes of these craft. And what I will say is it was the conclusion of many within the organization that the shape of the craft was a result of the function of the craft. And I'll leave it at that. But whether it's a disc or a tic-tac or a cigar or a triangle may very well just be a function of the craft, what its intended purpose is. Why this strikes a chord in me, I can't exactly say for sure. I think I just, I love looking at this phenomenon from any other angle than I have in the past. Um, and like my earlier thought about the orbs being seen everywhere, uh, possibly functioning as scouts, like that falls directly in line with what Mr. Elizondo is talking about here. And I, I can get behind a speculation like this. Um, I, I don't know. What, what do you all think? Do you agree that the shapes could signify their function? Or is it more random than that? Something to think about. Okay. Let's get weird, shall we? Former AFOSI agent Richard Doty talked about his witnessing a being of some sort during an interview on the show Cosmic Disclosure with Emery Smith. Now, you might recognize that name, Richard Doty, if you've watched any amount of UFO-related documentaries. And I, I think I've seen him in two of uh, Dr. Stephen Greer's films. He's very smart, very down-to-earth, like to the point, um, 
we're not talking tinfoil hat wearing guy. He's quite normal, or seems to be. <laughs> um, he always has uh, something really interesting to add to the conversation. But I, I want to direct your attention to this being that he describes seeing. And I think you'll see why in just a second. He says he was with a security detail of about 12 to 15 service members at the time that this happened. He was informed there was something extraterrestrial living beneath Urania Mountain on the western side of Nellis Testing Training Range on Tonopah Air Force Base in Nevada. Well, of course, he says he didn't believe that. Uh, so he was like, you know, bet, dog, let's, let's, let's go down there. I want to see this hideous thing that you are describing. He said that he actually thought that they were doing something else down there, something covert and classified, and they were trying to strike fear in him so that he would choose not to go down there. So he goes down there with these guys, unlocked this gigantic vault door that apparently they had erected the last time that they were down there and saw this thing and were like, okay, bye. They open the vault door. They walk down the stretch of corridor. As they're reaching the end, he says during this interview, this being, this creature, comes around the corner and stops in its tracks. Suspend your disbelief with me for just a second. I think you'll see why this stuck out to me. At a certain point, Dodie says that sometime during the encounter, he would move toward it a few steps and the creature moved toward him a few steps, but then just stopped. It wasn't aggressive and intent on harm, whatever it was. Mr. Dodie was having a hard time believing it as he was staring at it, trying to rationalize what he was seeing. After one of the service members said, you've got to be careful with that, he replied in disbelief, I don't know. That might be a human dressed in a suit. And the service member rightly shot back, you're nuts. All right, here is the interesting thing. Mr. Doty describes the creature as very tall, long fingers, no ears, big head, wore a tight-fitting uniform, and had an elephant nose-like appendage on its face. And Dodie speculated in this interview that he didn't know whether that was like a breathing apparatus or what it was. Now, that elephant nose, the, the uh, breathing apparatus, does, is that ringing any bells for anyone? Does that description sound familiar at all? I think we just talked about this. Dodie would later speculate that perhaps it was of the reptilian race. Um, I'm going to say no, because of the way it reacted toward him. There was nothing aggressive about this interaction. Um, and we will see why that is something to note in just a minute when we go through the reptilian description. So I am going to steer away from as much of the conspiracy stuff as I thought that I could avoid. Uh, but there are some details that specifically <laughs> rely on alien hybrid theory and some other like woo-woo spirituality stuff, which I'm all about. Uh, I'm about the woo-woo, uh, but it easily muddies the waters on the subject. And I'm, I'm also not doing all races, just some main players that have something to do with Earth. So here we go. Kicking it off with the reptilians, the worst of the worst and considered downright evil. Often called demonic, often roped into conspiracy theories in relation to our government and Hollywood. Another name for them is Draconis, and they hail from the Draco constellation, which is very interesting because scientists just last year discovered an ocean planet located in the Draco constellation, about 100 light years from Earth. Reptilians think of themselves as the heirs to the universe and are easily one of the most advanced species in the universe in regards to technology and one of the most ancient interstellar travelers. They are bipedal with reptile attributes. Their leaders look like a spiked crocodile-humanoid hybrid complete with wings, though their warrior and science classes look similar, just absent the wings. All are quite large, growing up to eight feet tall. Makes me think of uh, the Egyptian 
god, the reptile god Sobek, lord of the crocodiles, had a crocodile head. Um, it is said reptilians possess a chameleon-like trait and are able to take on the image of a human being for a short period of time. Supposedly, they were created by a species called the Carrions, or avians, who also created a bunch of other subspecies via genetic manipulation. But the reptilians were their first and their favorite child, teaching them from the start that the universe belonged to them and that their destiny was to dominate and rule over all. This resulted in how they look at and treat other sentient species. In short, not very kindly. They look at other creatures as property, things to be exploited, and their source of food. Not just their flesh, though, they do love it so much, but people's negative emotions as well. They need both to sustain themselves. They are cold and detached, animalistic, ferocious, arrogant, and greedy. They have overwhelming hubris, immense egos, but their Achilles heel, it seems, is their inability to adapt, which often in the past has been their downfall. The way that they have been beaten, because as terrifying and long-living as they are, they are neither immortal nor are they invincible. And as ruthless as they are to others, it's said they are just as ruthless within their own ranks. They believe the cruelty and abuse they dole out to their offspring makes their population strong and are outright sadistic to them. They say there aren't a ton of reports about abductions by reptilians because, well... The abductees don't often come back. Aren't they just a dream? A little less evil, but still to be avoided, are the mantis race, the insectoids. These creatures use spherical light orbs to travel throughout the universe. They are part of the reptilian empire and have abducted many people. It's said these beings will use holographic images to frighten people during sleep paralysis. So, that old hag crawling up your legs... It is just a giant praying mantis monster in disguise. I hope that makes everyone feel so much better. There have been both good and awful accounts of encounters with the mantis, but that may be because there are factions who have branched off away from the main group. Maybe something similar to what we would see with a species like the greys. Speaking of the greys, the greys are said to serve both the mantis race and the reptilians. They were designed and modified to do just that. Many accounts say that the reptilians created the greys by genetically altering them into cold and robotic beings better suited to their purpose as servants and scouts. The greys abduct people. I think that's one of the most well-known ideas about them. They do so in order to perform scientific and medical experiments with little regard for the trauma or pain they inflict on their victims. Many reports of these particular abductions are utterly terrifying. They may be doing this in service of their overlords, searching for food and resources. However, an interesting theory is that this species is actually working toward their own secret agenda to repair their DNA, damaged so thoroughly by the reptilians they can no longer physically procreate, but rather must clone in order to create offspring. Greys are generally humanoid, Extremely skinny and short, with gray skin, a big head, and big eyes. They are incredibly intelligent and lack emotion. They communicate telepathically, and many abductees speak to that information as well. If you're wondering where the good, benevolent stories of the greys are, you know you've, you've heard some of them, you know you have, you're like, what are you even talking about, Kristen? Where are they? Well, you would be right. We cannot talk about the greys without talking about the Zeta Reticulans. While they are technically the same race and both hail from the Zeta Reticuli star system, they seem to be distinctly different in their approach and ultimate agendas. Zeta Reticulans are going to look like your classic gray, but with slight differences. For instance, the gray is said to have rough, nasty skin, whereas the Zetas have smooth and healthy skin. The gray seems to be permanently scowling and is visually skeletal. The Zeta has a warmer behavior and uses facial expressions. 
The Zeta communicate to others calmly with warm expressions, while their evil counterpart doesn't really give a crap about communicating anything, so long as they get what they want from you. Zeta reticulans are incredibly intelligent and excessively advanced scientifically and technologically, having reached the point where they control their ships using consciousness and telepathic command. These aliens are much more social and interconnected with each other and other races and love to teach other aliens. And their approach to humankind is a bit more acceptable, a bit more benevolent, though they do still abduct. Their abductions are purportedly always for good or positive reasons, such as providing knowledge or solutions for the benefit of the human or humankind. And they do do their best to return the human sans any trauma from the event. These events have still scared a lot of people, but it would seem this race, as opposed to their gray brethren, really intend no harm or fear. This next one is a little woo-woo, but um, Arcturians are too cool to not share. These beings average about four or five feet tall. They have giant almond-shaped eyes and varying shades of bluish-green to cobalt-blue skin. They have smooth, hairless bodies and large heads, small ears, pronounced cheekbones, thin lips, and small noses, three fingers per hand. This race is believed to be the most ancient and wisest in the entire universe. They were the original galactic inhabitants and have bred and created many separate species. So... We are all but made of stardust and Arcturian. This race has been around for so long that they have developed the ability to exist in different forms, often foregoing a physical body, period, instead appearing only as a bluish energy. They are also able to reside or exist in higher dimensions and are interdimensional, often around but not visible to the human eye. They have even evolved beyond the need for physical nourishment and instead require only high vibrations and good emotions and feelings, absorbing the energy through their skin. They also require little to no sleep. They are telepathic and telekinetic and live to be about 400 years old. Arcturians are known to be kind, loving, patient, non-judgmental, and follow their basic tenets of service and healing closely. They also, much like the Zetas, enjoy teaching others. They value knowledge. They value enlightenment and are easily one of the most enlightened species in existence. They are a very peaceful bunch who put a lot of focus on spiritual development. I am betting it's pretty difficult to piss one of these guys off. Also like the Zetas, they are so technologically advanced, they too run their ships based on their energy and consciousness. They don't seem to abduct people, though they will connect with people, only ever via channeling from a distance as they did with the sleeping prophet Edgar Cayce. According to Cayce, they are not only higher beings than us, they are the highest beings anywhere, and exist primarily in the fifth dimension. And finally, the Arcturians are not only focused on their spirituality and growth, but ours as well. Though they wish us to succeed, they are of the belief that we must do it on our own and therefore will not directly interfere. The Sasani are a hybrid of a hybrid, a cross between reptilian and a Zeta reticulin human mashup. They are incredibly advanced and just one of many species involved in humankind's consciousness, evolution, and awakening. The Sasani are called the Beings of Light, and they hail from the Orion constellation. Their energetic evolution exceeds our own, but only by a little bit, as they are nearing their ascension from the fourth to the fifth dimension. They have the intellectual capabilities of the Zeta Reticulans and the emotional capacity of the human being. They are also adaptable and curious. So I'm not sure where the reptilian aspect comes into play there, but that's the story. They stand up to five feet tall with peachy gray skin, large eyes, large heads. They evolve quicker than human beings, but they still hold humans in high regard. These beings often utilize channeling and consider any opportunity to speak with someone here a gift. They think we are brave and very tough. I mean, 
don't put me up against a reptilian. But yeah, yeah, you know what? I I am kind of tough. Next up, the tall whites. Uh, Now, this one is really interesting because we have a whistleblower from the Air Force who says he had many interactions with these guys. Charles Hall, who was a weather observer for the Air Force in the 60s, says he was terrified when he first met the tall whites. Though they look fairly human, it was the knowledge that they weren't that scared him so. It would take him six months just to feel comfortable even being around them, though it seems he always kept his guard up, even after that. (laughs) He says they were friendly enough, not all of them, but for the most part they were, and very individualistic. They had a clear societal structure with jobs and roles and personalities to match. The tall white is very humanoid-looking, but fairly odd-looking to a human in comparison. They are very frail and thin, with bigger eyes than humans that stretch further around the sides of their heads. Eye color is typically blue with white pupils, but as they age, they take on a pink shade. Their ears and nose are half the size of ours, small lips. Instead of teeth, they have ridges because they are plant eaters, very little body hair, very thin hair on their heads. Body structure is very frail. Their bones are about half as big as ours, so not built for heavy lifting. Their hair is platinum, their skin extremely pale, and they walk with shuffling small steps. They are human height, 5'11 to 6 foot, for the first 400 or so years of their lives when suddenly they growth spurt it to 8 to 10 feet tall. These beings can live anywhere from 700 to 800 human years. No tall white actually dies from old age. They typically have one final growth spurt at around 700 years, which causes their bones to stretch their body so tall that their internal organs, which do not grow in proportion, can no longer support their body. Tall whites cannot multitask and are very intrigued by the human's ability to do so. They see Earth as a cold and desolate planet and consider us brave, rough, and tumble types. They find it very unusual our willingness to work with and try to understand animals. Things like using cows for milking, horses for transport, dogs and cats for pets, and beloved members of our families. They find this behavior so odd and unusual as most intelligent species they have encountered throughout the universe. Once they reach their evolved levels of intellect, they see no need any longer to consort with those of lower intelligence and kill them off. That is awful, if that were true. Be better, universe. In all the time that Mr. Hall worked conjointly with the tall whites, he says he never saw them do anything magical, like time travel or dimension hopping or anything like that. They had advanced technology, but they were unable to do anything that wasn't afforded to them by the capabilities of those technologies, such as their craft's ability to travel at faster than the speed of light, anti-gravity stuff, or their suits creating a protective energetic force field or allowing them to levitate somewhat. Or their weapons, which most young and regular adults of the species carried around with them at all times. Hall describes it looking like a white pencil with a squarish, cubish section to it. It worked like a microwave laser and could be set to many different settings, such as iodine and sodium, and when pointed at the subject would affect those matching targets in the body often bringing them to their knees and pleading for them to stop, which Hall reports did happen a couple of times on base. Um, For good reason, though. You know, they they are a very protective species. Um, As frail as they are, they're, they're always on the lookout for danger, according to Hall. And Hall told this story, actually, in this really good YouTube video. I'll, I'll, I'll link it. Uh, but he told this story about this soldier on base who was walking with one of the female tall whites. And he went to catch her by the arm because he thought that she was falling off of a stair. And <laughs> she, she wasn't. And she zapped him quicker than you can say little white death ray pencil. Um, it, it was on a low setting. He was fine. <laughs> There were also settings on these weapons 
that could hypnotize a person and cause missing time or memory loss. Neuralizer? Anyone? All right. Um, so, yeah, there are, uh, there's a lot more to learn about the tall whites. Like I said, I, I will link that video below. It's, it's an hour long. It's very, very good. Um, and it's all about Mr. Hall and his time in the Air Force and, and his experiences working with the tall whites. It's, uh, it's good stuff. Check it out. Let's just do two more and then we will call it. The next group of aliens looks a lot like humans, though far more attractive. Pleiadians also go by Nordic, Space Brothers, Pleherans, or mistakenly, the Tall Whites. They look to be of Scandinavian or Nordic descent. They are tall, strong, and athletic with blonde hair and blue eyes. They are highly peaceful people and spiritually advanced. They are incredibly sensitive to psychic energies and often will use channeling as a means to contact humans, though there were numerous reports of physical contact in the 50s. Supposedly, they are working to help expand human consciousness from behind the scenes and love to teach and enlighten us while in disguise or via channeling during meditation. They live anywhere from 700 to 1,000 years and exist primarily in the fourth and fifth dimensions. They are the main antagonists to the reptilians. Kind of love that. They consider forms of money a very primitive way of doing things that only gives the illusion of scarcity. They do not have medical issues as their medicinal ways focus solely on curing, not treating. They detest corporations and their need to control and subvert the masses. They are telepathic, very intelligent, affectionate, emotionally astute, and maternal. They are all about perfect balance, growth, knowledge, peace, and are just a good-natured, benevolent folk. I am digging it so far. There haven't been many accounts of abduction by this race, though most people who have claimed as much say their experience was a positive one. They are also said to drive cigar-shaped craft. All right. Last one. Might just be my favorite and is a species I had never heard of before I started looking into it. The Yayel are said to be loving and kind. They look very much like us, but if you're paying attention, you won't be able to help but feel the difference. Reportedly, they radiate a powerful energy that can be felt at a distance. You might be able to see the difference in the eyes as well, as they have large, vibrant eyes with very bright iris colors. In their own language, they are known as the Shalinaya, meaning those who will come first. And that is a very popular idea about them, that not only have they visited before multiple times and attempted contact, they will be the first alien race to do so. This race, apparently, is behind two of the largest sightings in human history, the Phoenix Lights and the sighting in Belgium. So, we know they drive those triangular craft. Their intention is to continue showing themselves in this way, getting us comfortable with the idea of them until the time comes when we are ready, and they will land their craft and come out. In the meantime, though, they reveal themselves via channeling, dreams, and meditation. It is said to be very easy for us to pick up on their telepathic transmissions, so keep your inner ears open if you wish to communicate with them. They are far more mentally and spiritually advanced than us, but are friendly and eager toward humankind. They wish to help humanity understand ourselves at a deeper level, embrace peace and harmony with each other, and know more of our history, their history, and our origins, and how we got here. It is their utmost wish to connect with us fully. Their symbol is the triangle. At the present time, they keep it with one side of the triangle missing, communicating that they are missing a piece of themselves. Once full connection has been made with humankind— they will complete the triangle, finally making it whole. Oh, that is going to do it for our spectrum of alien species and races. Um, there were so many more, so many more, but I thought this was a good representation. Um, you know, it's funny, though, in all that research, 
I didn't once stumble upon anything that resembled a little green man in a spacesuit. Hmm. So weird. People point to the Hopkinsville incident, the Hopkinsville goblins. Uh, but those people who told that story didn't once say that the creatures that they encountered had green skin. They said silverish, gray. Little Green Men was the press's doing that really brought that misconception to life. But yeah, so far, as far as I can tell, Little Green Men are just a figment of imagination. It seems that only skeptics and uh, those uninformed about the info and the abduction reports available out there are the only ones frothing at the mouth about little green men. <laughs> I mean, you guys okay? <laughs> Maybe you should talk to somebody. It's weird. All jokes, of course, nothing but love to my skeptics out there. Hell, I am incredibly skeptical on a bunch of this stuff. I find the UFO info just fascinating. I love it. I love the history. I love the sightings. Love it. The extraterrestrial stuff is a bit more something else, isn't it? Um, a, a lot less tangible. And, and I've said this before, but it's not that I don't believe that there are other forms of intelligent life somewhere out there in the 94 billion light year size of the universe. But UFOs have just become easier to accept. We, we have photo and video evidence of these things. Um, but then there is the question, who is driving them? Who's controlling them? You know, something is. Someone is responsible. I'm just not so quick to say that someone is a crocodile person thing with wings and a bad attitude. But never say never. I suppose. Reality, like real reality, is, is far stranger than we could possibly imagine. And I'm not sure anyone um, can truly conceive of, of that high strangeness until we ourselves are face to face with it or we are abducted. Um, we shall have a better idea anyway on the next solo episode all about abduction reports and what the experience is like as told by those abducted. I think we've gone through more than enough information today to keep you all thinking over the next couple of weeks. Let's um, switch gears here. So I, I have some new listeners um, tuning in for the first time for this season. If you've been following along for the UFO content, uh, this next little bit may not be up your alley. <laughs> Might get a little woo-woo. As part of this journey of mine to discover what it is that I believe and what it is that I think I know, I like to share with you all paranormal things that happened to me. And I would like to share something profound that took place recently and still has me shook. So last season, we covered psychics and mediums. And as a challenge to myself, I wanted to try my hand at a psychic ability. You know, like nothing like firsthand experience to make a believer out of someone, right? And you all chose astral projection. And I talked about that journey on the season four finale all about my attempts and my hurdles and my ultimate failure uh, in accomplishing it. And I told you a story about something that I saw, a figure at the end of my bed. And I included that because I wasn't certain if, if that was like part of an accidental projection or if, if it was just a weird dream or, you know, what it was. I, I didn't know what it was. I am now certain that that experience, whatever it was, had nothing to do with astral projection. How do I know that? Because I recently projected. And this was not that. This was 
unlike anything that I have ever experienced in my life. So the night that it happened, it, I, I was up late uh, studying for this episode, actually. And it was almost 11 o'clock and I had like 15 minutes left on that YouTube video that I was telling you about, about Charles Hall and uh, the Tall Whites. And I was massively exhausted from my week. It was a rough one. And by the end of it, um, I, I was just, I was zombified. And in addition to that, I was getting incredibly drowsy from this video that I was watching. And it was like way past the usual time I go to bed, yada, yada, yada. But I really wanted to push through and finish this video before I went to sleep. Like, like cramming for a big test and hoping that subconsciously I, I would retain it while I slept, you know, whatever. So my eyes were drooping. My, my body was at zero. I was just on empty. But I made it through to the end because I, I am a professional, damn it. I turned off the laptop, turned off the lights, and, and I laid there just going through this stuff over and over and over in my mind. All of the information that I could remember um, just as long as I could. And what I didn't realize until later was that what I was doing and what I had been doing for the, the hour leading up to laying down was I was putting myself in the perfect state for this projection to take place. Kind of like the wake back to bed method, just without me having been asleep first. So I laid there in the dark, eyes closed, and I, I was just thinking about this guy's story and and the tall whites and the weapons that they use and like, you know, oh, what a, what a weird story about Richard Doty and the elephant face guy and um, oh, reptilians are such hogwash, you know, so on and so forth. It just kept going. I kept thinking, kept having completely lucid, coherent thoughts. And I was doing this for so long that it, it suddenly occurred to me that I shouldn't be. I, I was asleep. So why was I still able to continue this internal dialogue with myself? And that is when I felt this sense of stark separation, a, just a sudden realization that I was not my sleeping body. I was just inside of it, which led to the thought, is this what I think it is? Which led to the thought, you know, I wonder if I could get out. <laughs> it just suddenly seems so possible when, when I'd never been able to do it before. And I, I didn't do anything immediately. I, I just laid there wondering if somehow this was really happening. If somehow I was able to get out, what would that feel like? And then I just made the decision that I was going to try. And in my mind, still having this very lucid, very coherent internal dialogue with myself, I started running through all of the ways that I remembered astral projectors reporting how they exited their bodies. And I remember reading somewhere that for anybody who'd never done it before, the easiest way to get out was to just simply roll out. So I was like, okay. Here's nothing. And with that intention, I felt this surging, like like just this really powerful, electrical, vibratory feeling just, whoo, just coursing through my body. And it grew in intensity. Like, like it, it just felt like everything just lit up. Like it is hard to explain. But it grew when I began to sense my own movement and I began to roll to my left. And as I'm rolling, I'm like yelling in my head. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I'm moving. Oh, holy shit. Is this really happening? I, I'm, I'm moving. I, I'm out. I did it. I'm out. And then everything just abruptly stopped as I'm staring directly into the carpet. <laughs> Lee had COVID that week. Uh, like I said, it was a rough week. A lot of things happened. I will spare you the details, but I, I, I was 
camping out on the floor of my studio that night. So the rollout was was a, a really quick trip. So I was staring at carpet, into carpet, about an inch above it, and like not touching it. I, 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 I didn't look down my body to see, but I could just tell from the distance, like I was away from it. I was, I was above it. I was hovering. Okay. I, I could tell that I was hovering and I'm staring into this carpet, like, like seeing all of the fibers and like all of these different colors, like very, very clearly, like almost like microscopic vision. And the next part took place very, very quickly just all thoughts, all realizations happened immediately. And it was at this point that two things happened simultaneously. I became aware of this loud, like struggling breathing just to my left, like very loud gasping. And I did not look over, but I was struck with fear because I believed in that moment that my body was struggling for air because I was out of it. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm killing myself. Simultaneously, I still felt this desire to, like, explore. Like, I I was out. Like, that's what you do. But that meant I would have had to right side up myself and look around. And I was afraid that if I looked up, I was going to see a shadow person by my door. And that's a very specific thing to think and a very specific fear to have when I wasn't even willing to look and see. But I was convinced that that's what was going to happen. And then I would know what to do (laughs) at that point. So the fear in the moment was just too much. And I started thinking, okay, how do I get back in? And I remembered the talk that I had with Vincent Fields. And I remembered him telling me or or wrote it in his book about this thing that he did uh, whenever he needed the fear to go away or for like his surroundings to clear up. He would demand clarity now and then he would immediately have full control. So I screamed in my head, body now. And I kept screaming it on repeat as I felt myself begin to roll back over settle into my body, and then this really intense feeling of rising back up to to some surface, like like adjustment back into full waking consciousness. It felt like I was in dark water, kicking and fighting my way to the surface. And when I broke through, my eyes opened, my heart was racing. I immediately looked over at the door, there, there was nothing there. This experience was just so profound. Like I said, nothing like this has ever happened to me. Like I, I, the paranormal experiences that I've had and I've told you about, they always took place outside of me, like separate from me. Nothing like this. And the next morning, like I was, I was like that meme, you know, with with the cat on the keyboard, like like just searching for answers, and. I found this really incredible uh, ebook, like full length, for free, online ebook, all about astral projection. And I, I will, I'll link it below if you're interested. But what's weird is when I went to click the link just on the Google page, it landed me right in the middle of the book, randomly, on the chapter, all about how to face your fears when projecting. And this thing talked about like shadow people and, and like other entities that you would encounter if, if you're just starting out. Um, it also talked about audio hallucinations, which I, I don't recall having learned that, like all too much about that, or, or maybe I just didn't retain it before. Uh, like, like people hear uh, chains dragging and, and doors slamming and, um, you know, people calling your name. And apparently, like according to the author, that is the astral plane's way of convincing you to get back in your body because they they don't want you there. According to the author, you are a powerful being that the entities that reside there are afraid of. So I, I quickly realized after reading all of this that I was probably fooled 
uh, both by the fear of possibly seeing something, but also by that sound that I heard of what I thought was my body struggling for air. But now I know it was an audio hallucination. I just wish I, I had found this chapter before my experience. It would have been a lot more <laughs> pleasant. Um, but anyway, yeah, that, that, that was a big mess. I'm so sorry, but there you go. Uh, I astral projected and it was brief. I, I now understand why the experience is so hard to describe to others in a way that they will understand. And I now understand why it is so hard for anyone who's never experienced it before to believe you. But now I know for myself that astral projection is 100% real. And you're not physically awake. It's not just some powerful dream. Um, there, there, there isn't a doubt in my mind. And as nerve-wracking as that experience was, I am so incredibly grateful for it. It's incredibly comforting to experience firsthand that state of body and consciousness separation, to know that that is real, that that's possible. And I think you may have just heard for the first time on the show, maybe, that um, I, I don't just believe a thing to be real, but that I know it is. <laughs> so crazy stuff, you guys. You know, it's all fun and games until you get a little peek behind the curtain. Is reality not the absolute weirdest? <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, I hope you all enjoyed hearing my experience. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad I could share that with you. And I hope it makes you think. And I hope that you enjoyed the episode today and that that makes you think. That is all for you today. Um, thank you for tuning in. Please rate, review, and share the show if you are enjoying it. Um, and follow along on all of the socials at ParanormGirlPod. We will be back next week with an all-new conversation episode on Tuesday. Have a great week, everyone. Stay safe. Keep the nightlight on and sleep with one eye open. <laughs>